I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And Inside Lewin Davis. Daddy! Hello, sugar. How's my little girl? <laughs> he ain't our daddy. I am the only daddy you got. I am the damn heterofamilias. Now Mama's got a new boat. Vernon here's got a job. Vernon's got prospects. He's bona fide. What are you? You can't marry him. Can I am and I will. This uh, gentleman bothering you? Well, you can't marry my wife. And stay out of the Woolworth. To get back to his wife and kids, Ulysses Everett McGill will do anything. Hey, any boy, Smitty. But he's about to get off on the wrong track. Two years after The Big Lebowski, in the year 2000, the now Oscar darlings Joel and Ethan Cohen put together what might be their most ambitious project to date, maybe ever. Set in rural Mississippi in the 1930s and concerning itself chiefly with three foolish white male convicts who escape a chain gang and are running to a very specific hidden treasure that will heretofore eminently and in perpetuity be rendered inaccessible by virtue of encroaching floodwaters, lending this a here cross-country excursion a ticking pocket watch of a timer. Straddling genres of comedy and drama with an erratic, nervy energy that often leaves the viewer uncertain whether to laugh or to flinch, this is an incredibly loose and vague adaptation of the ancient Greek poet Homer's Odyssey. As if this wasn't enough, juggling screwball comedy with a tightly refraining script and some light social commentary on this vile place and time to be black. This is also a musical packed with diegetic songs in the bluegrass style with a range of beautiful and stirring southern voices making proceedings more operatic. This was the first time Joel and Ethan worked with George Clooney, who would return in Intolerable Cruelty, Burn After Reading, and Hail Caesar. They also co-wrote Clooney's 2017 film Suburbicon, and the rest of the cast and crew is riddled with Cohen mainstays. John Goodman? Check. John Torturo? Check. Charles Durning? Check. Holly Hunter? Check. Roger Deakins on Cinematography? Check. Carter Burwell on scoring duty? No check. This was one of their only films wherein the music was supervised by someone different, in this case T-Bone Burnett. The other notable example being the 1960s folk musical odyssey of Inside Lewin Davis. That's why we're making this a double bill and actually having to jump forward and then backwards again through time. The film utilises the backdrop of the time and place to present us with a dangerous world of treachery and superstition. This was still within living memory of the Civil War, seeing as the last known veteran, Albert Henry Wilson, died more than two decades later in 1956. However, while the movie dabbles in the theme of black music being co-opted and downright stolen by white people, starting with the gospel of the chain gang and evolving through multiple forms and subgenres, eventually coming full circle to a funeral dirge sung by figurative enslaved people.
And I wish I could say that the Coens are overtly drawing a line between what we thought of as slavery and what we now know as the prison system. The movie itself, by 2020 standards, does come off as naive and stemming from white privilege. So let's take a look at these characters and scenarios and work out where it sings and where it might occasionally stumble. So George Clooney plays Ulysses Everett McGill, a vain man, a man who focuses mostly on his own hair. This was relatively unusual for him because he had spent the 90s, as the, like for the first half of the 90s, he was Dr. Green in ER, very steady hand, a, a serious presence, but with a twinkle in his eye and just charming heartthrob. At the same time, relatively low-key for a movie star, but then when he started... Uh, turning up in From Dust Till Dawn and The Peacemaker and One Fine Day and Batman and Robin and Out of Sight. These were roles for a modern-day Cary Grant. They knew what they had on their hands. Except with From Dust Till Dawn, where he was probably playing like a modern-day Jimmy Cagney. Or maybe Robert Mitchum. But here he's a prat. He's a prat among prats. This isn't like there's a, a smart member of the group, a surly member of the group, and a doofus of the group. They're all doofuses. One of them thinks he's smarter than the others, and the other one is surlier. There is that, yeah. I, ultimately, he knows longer words than the other guys, and he utilises them liberally. Jesus! Can I count on you people? Sorry, Everett. Well, all right. We take off through that bayou. Then... Wait a minute. Who elected you leader of this outfit? Well, Pete, I figured it should be the one with the capacity for abstract thought. But if that ain't the consensus view, then hell, let's put her to a vote. Suits me. I'm voting for yours truly. Well, I'm voting for yours truly, too. OK. I'm with you fellas. He says there's no treasure in the uh, middle end. Yeah, so to begin with, they have... We start with them running away from the chain gang, having somehow, in ways that are never really outlined, escaped. Yeah, they're still and, manacled together. Though. Yeah, the, the three of them, but they obviously weren't manacled to the rest of the chain somehow. It wasn't the first time George Clooney had performed a dazzling prison breakout. See, also the aforementioned out of sight. Uh, but he's told his two compatriots that there is a, a treasure that he has buried back in his hometown so that they will come with him when he runs. Because somehow, even though he's not shackled to anyone else, he can't get unshackled from these two. So they have to come with him if mm. he's going to go. And he has to give them something that's going to be worth their while because Pete, in particular, has only got about a fortnight left on his sentence. So he's got to have a really good reason to want to run. So it's got to be treasure. Absolutely. And it later transpires that the treasure was bullshit all along uh, and he, was, he wanted to get away for rather 
significant other reasons. Mm. Significant other reasons. Indeed. Okay, nice. So yeah, that's Ulysses. Pete is played by John Turturro, Barton Fink, and Jesus Quintana. I see them very much as uh, Clooney is ice and uh, Turturro is fire, which would make Tim Blake Nelson, his first time in a Coen Brothers movie, as Delma, lukewarm water. Yeah, that sounds about right. Delma's kind of... It's not really fair to say he's dumber than the other two. But he is less worldly than mm. the other two. He knows less about what's going on, is far more willing to take things at face value, is much more easily tricked. Mm. He's more of a trusting child. He's almost Lenny in Of Mice and Men. Yeah. In fact, a like there's bit. a lot of Of Mice and Men in this. Yeah, I mean, yeah. the, the you know, era in the is... Malkovich and Gary Sinise version. Yeah, yeah. Um, but they're, they're... It's little grapes of wrath running towards something rather than running away from nothing, which is what's mm. happening in... Uh, Head out California way. <laughs> of mice and men. They're also running away from something because once again, the Coen brothers have summoned up a mythical demonic force in uh, this LaForce from Butch and Sundance type character who is said to... Is he the, like, they keep talking about these guys on the road. Is he the one who's said to be the devil himself? I think he must be because there's, there's one line in particular... He had a big hound, so... Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's one line in particular later on when they're talking about having been pardoned or something. Something comes up that alludes to their original crimes. Mm. And he says something like, that's just to do with the laws of men. Mm. It would appear that, in his mind at least, they owe him something well beyond what they owe to society. Yeah. Which, again, the less it's explained, the more there is to speculate on, the more mythical and superstition-bound it feels. Absolutely. And the fact that it does have all of these sort of little subtleties that allude to pre-Christian myth mm. actually makes the fact that they're being chased by the uh, a representation of the Christian devil slightly out of place and therefore somehow more threatening. Yeah. In the big rock candy mountains, all the cops have wooden legs, and the bulldogs all have rubber teeth, and the hens lay soft-boiled eggs. The farmer's trees are full of fruit, and the barns are full of hay. Oh, I'm bound to go where there ain't no snow, where the rain don't fall, the wind don't blow, in the big rock candy mountains. In the big rock candy mountains, you never change your socks. And the little streams of alcohol come a-trickling down the rocks. The brakemen have to tip their hats and the railroad bulls are blind. There's a lake of stew and a whiskey too. You can paddle all around them in a big canoe in the Big Rock Candy Mountains. The Big Rock Candy Mountains, first recorded by Harry McClintlock in 1928, is a country folk song about a hobo's idea of paradise, a modern version of the medieval concept of cocaine, a land of plenty like Tirnanog, also a land of contrarians where the restrictions of society are defied, abbots beaten by the monks, sexual liberty is open, nuns flipped over to show their bottoms, and food is plentiful, skies that rain cheese which back in those days represented both wish-fulfillment and resentment at scarcity in the strictures of ascetism, which is a lifestyle characterised by abstinence from sensual pleasures. Often
important for the pursuit of spiritual goals, but some people just get handed a life of that. McClintock said that he actually wrote the song more than 30 years earlier in 1895, based on tales from his youth hoboing through the United States while working for the railroad as a brakeman. I first heard this song as a boy, sung by Burl Ives. And it's timeless. After all, who hasn't dreamed of it raining nuns with their butts out? And the first Google question result is, are there real rock candy mountains? Yes, they're just over to the left of all that leprechaun gold. There's one thing I noticed about it this time, which I'd never really seen before. I must have picked up on it, but obviously when you're doing analyses for, uh, for this show, you never take your eyes off the screen and you study every frame. It's still Roger Deakins on cinematography, but there are scenes with obvious chroma key, which is green screen. And once you've seen them, you can't unsee them. And some of them, it's really questionable as to why they went with chroma. The most noticeable early one is when they get onto a rolling train and Ulysses starts talking to the boxcar hobos inside and asking if any of them are perhaps proficient at metallurgy and they might free them from their bonds. Because all three of them are bound together, when I think it's Delma falls first out of the train because he's unable to get in and Pete follows and that means that Ulysses is dragged away as well so George Clooney gets like I said it's rare to it felt at the time rare to see George Clooney acting like a prat and falling on his face then throughout the 2000s we saw it quite a lot it seems like he has a he goofball it. side that yeah. he, he loves to uh, exercise specifically with the Coens because that's prestigious goofball. Indeed. Okay, so that particular scene, I'll tell you exactly why that one was green screen. Super fucking Safety. dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. The moving countryside outside the train could not be real. I would absolutely um, say definitely don't do that one for realsies. Indeed. Uh, there may have been a couple of other scenes that were green screen for similar reasons, uh, but for the vast majority of it, it's not green screen. Mm -hmm. It's colour grading. Oh, yeah? The countryside that they were filming in was vivid, beautiful, lush green and the Coens wanted everything to, to look sandy pale. and right. dusty and grim and To look like the Grapes of Wrath yeah. again. So, okay, that makes a lot more sense. However, oh no, wait, it actually might. Okay, what my eyes were picking up on was the presence of tiny green edges so my you know, since I've seen that so many times before, with people in that strange kind of layered effect, when they meet the sirens later on, that scene was green screened. And I'm like, are you telling me you can't go to a beautiful river with Roger Deakins and photograph six people in the prime of life and various stages of undress and dampness, and you can't just capture that on film? You have to use chroma key somehow? What kind of visual trickery was going on here? But now you're saying that behind them was probably a lot more greenery, and the reason why I caught it is because they have flowing hair, and they couldn't catch those little tiny slivers between the hair. I know, I've used Photoshop for decades, I know how difficult that can be to do that with just tiny tools. And this was obviously edited pre-digital. Most likely we were getting an old-fashioned. Either way, this film suffers a little as a result of that. There's a, there's a slightly artificial feel about I, it. I get what you mean. I, I'm, I wouldn't... Not the whole way through, but just a couple yeah, occasional I, scenes. Personally, I don't think it does harm it because the whole thing has a slight artificiality to it anyway. True, true. It's it enhances a, it's a that. One. It gives you a visual read 
for the fact that everything in the script is slightly off, the fact that everything in, in people's characters and what they do is slightly mythical and unreal. They meet two people of colour early on. Uh, there's a blind man with one of those... What are they? The things you put on the railway tracks where you put yeah. up and down the nodding donkey thingies. Oh, they are literally just called a hand car. I mean, he's effectively rowing a boat across a river, but it's on a train tracks, mm. and he gives them... Uh, he's he's the blind seer, so that would make him Theresius. Theresius, uh predicting what they're going to see, like a cow on the roof of a cotton house. Yes, and there's also the fact that everybody else on the chain gang was black. Yes, uh, again though, like the only three white guys run away from this black chain gang, mm. and I know, I damn well know that the Coens do not have sharp teeth for this kind of thing. That they are just kind of kind of. Sweep their hand, but not really have anything significant to say about it. This is not a Jordan Peele film. And the second uh, black guy they meet is Tommy, who is a gifted guitarist. From the sounds of it, more gifted as a result of selling his soul to the devil last night unseen in a very potentially interesting scene, and using interesting in the best way there. He's a musician they meet. In fact, thinking about it, there was a series of BMW adverts around about this time, where they recruited people like Tony Scott, John Frankenheimer, Ang Lee, Wong Kar Wai, Guy Ritchie, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñatalu, John Woo, Joe Carnahan, and then they came back in 2016 for a little reprise with Neil Blomkamp. And this was a series of 10-minute shorts about Clive Owen, the driver, and it was kind of like an episodic mini-series of, like, Clive Owens get, getting into scrapes. In one of them, his passenger this time is James Brown, and Brown is recounting a tale of when he sold his soul to the devil so that he could have these amazing moves and, and he could sing as well as he did. And I was, that really kind of stuck with me, and I think it kind of interlaced with Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Also, if you want to see some textbook 2002 colour grading and editing, the Tony Scott one... It's called The Higher Colon Beat the Devil. It's on YouTube. Gary Oldman's in it as the devil, who's also Mick Jagger. You rock and roll types. You preach a cult of originality, but in the end of the day, you're all the same. But at the end of the day, what do you got? You know, black and hair, doing sparkly cowboy for you. <laughs> deal was your soul for fame and fortune? Did not deliver. Yes. Yeah. But the aging process we didn't address it. And when did you figure that out? Well, I'll tell you. I can't do the split no more. It ain't easy to be James Brown and scare the kids. So you scared me. And I'm the Prince of Darkness. Oh, I feel good. This is the part of the film where they could say the most about the music industry and kind of wind up not really saying too much. It's, it's difficult to really put a finger on. They go to a radio station and record a song, Man of Constant Sorrow, which you probably remember from around that time. They played it a lot because it just kind of took audiences by surprise and, and delighted them to see... 
constant sorrow all through his days. I am a man of constant sorrow. I've seen trouble all my Place where I was born and raised, the place where he was born and raised. For six long years I've been in trouble, no pleasure here on earth I found. I'll die upon this train Perhaps he'll die upon this train You can bury me in some valley For many years where I may So they're playing, Tommy's accompanying them on guitar with this fantastic acoustic plucking, and Stephen Root, who was the dude in Get Out, who, I want your eye, boy! And he is the second blind man they've met on this journey so far. It's almost like Jordan Peele sat and watched this and then just sort of wrote down, Stephen Root, question mark, (laughs) records their stuff. There's never any explanation as to why these guys who christen themselves the Soggy Bottom Boys and originally start out claiming to be black because the man they're talking to is blind. This is definitely part of Get Out's development. Stephen Root is a blind photographer in Get Out and he's a blind music producer in this. And they, they claim to be black except for their friend who's white. I'm just... Yeah. No, uh, they're, they're idiots. This is not a careful, cunning ruse. He's an artist in Get Out, not a 
photographer. Okay. Chris Artist. is the photographer. Sorry, Chris the photographer. Okay, so they then record a song which then gets played on the radio and everyone fucking loves it. I think within the context of the movie, it gets heard and when we go to a Piggly Wiggly later on, it gets sold out and, and uh, the lady's like, can I please have Man of Constant Sorrow by the Soggy Bottom Boys? I'm sorry, man. We're waiting for more to come in. Once you've seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and actually seen the intensity of the indignity, you could be aware that black music was stolen by white people up until that point. But when you sit with it for Chadwick Boseman's last film, through the process of recording and producing and then the handover and the depersonalization that brings, to then watch something made way before that that just naively tosses this out and then, well, uh, to uh, go back to our first Pinocchio show... It's an incident disguised as a theme. Indeed. I think the the observations about the music industry that are made here, and I would say there are echoes of those observations in Inside Lewin Davis as well. I, I'm not seeing a lot because of, of money how, here. Because of, yeah, exactly. Because of how the Coens work, I don't think this is them making incisive observations and remarks about the music industry. I think this is them talking about their experiences in the film industry. Because mm. and, and, Barton Fink just wasn't enough. They had to do it again. As yeah. with uh, moving forward, well, we've Hail said this Caesar. before. Directors often will make the same film over and over again. It suggests that there is some fish hook in their brain that they need to deal with. Joel, Ethan, who got kidnapped? <laughs> Did you leave the money? What? Question. A <laughs> little bit of money. But the, the element of somebody with talent but no real street smarts getting taken advantage of they get told they're going to get ten dollars each and they because the recording guy is blind decide that they go uh ulysses decides he's going to put one over on him by pretending there's six of them instead of four so he they think they've won a mighty victory because they got out of there with sixty dollars <laughs> And this record then goes on to become a bestseller. The US's first number one. They had to invent charts just so that they could... uh... But it does save their lives. Yeah. The Soggy Bottom Boys are excellent singers. And it bugs me that of the four of them, Tommy is the only one who got his talent from the devil. The rest of them, they were just born that way. It also bothers me that Tommy disappears from the group in between shots after this situation he's playing some blues while they sit around a campfire talking about what they'd like to buy with the money they get from the treasure that doesn't exist then they spot the devil turn up with his dudes and set light to the barn that the devil thinks they're in and in between the standing up tommy is nowhere to be found and his absence is explained away with a line P-R-U-N-N-O-F-T. He does appear later, and he is the source of their actual true heroism in one moment, insofar as they risk life and limb to rescue him from the KKK. But he's so thinly written, appearing and disappearing as needed, that I actually addressed this in one of my books, uh, Back in Time Plus Space. I was originally setting up to kind of redress that whole Marty McFly teaches Chuck Berry how to do the duck walk, but in featuring a genuinely innately talented black singer who has to work against the system, 
I just wanted Joe Whalen to feel like a real person. Speaking of real people, Tommy Johnson was a real musician. To enhance his fame, he cultivated a sinister persona, claiming to have sold his soul to the devil at the crossroads in exchange for his mastery of the guitar. But unfortunately, because of the way this story is, where the devil actually exists, they can never just have Tommy explain, nah, that's not what happened at all. It's just something I say. Or maybe they could. They just didn't. Go to sleep, you little babe. Go to sleep, you little babe. Your mama's gonna wait and your dad's gonna stay. Don't leave nobody but the babe. My favorite scene is the sirens. It is hypnotic in so many ways. Sultry, sweaty visuals. Amazing voices, lingering glances, clinging clothing, three men standing, completely helpless, open-mouthed. You're sweet little baby. You're sweet little baby. You're sweet little baby. You're sweet little in the rock and the sugar don't stop. Gonna bring a bottle to the baby. Don't you weep, pretty babe? 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 She's long gone with the red shoes on. Gonna need another loving babe. Go to sleep, little 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 You and me. Go to sleep, you little babe. Go to sleep, you little babe. Come lay your bones on the alabaster stones and be my yellow loving babe. Hey! Hey! Oh, you ain't got time for hide sick! Sweet Jesus, Everett. They left his heart. <laughs> Can't you see it, Everett? Them sirens did this to Pete. They loved him up and turned him into a horny toad. Uh, for some reason, that feels like pure cinema to me. It's so daft and it's so. Well, I mean, you know, like we're going with the evidence here, and they are sirens, and this does seem to be in a place where where magic actually somehow happens. So maybe they did just turn Pete into a toad, and you know what? He's less obnoxious at this point. <laughs> there is that. And, and yet, easier to transport around. Yeah, doesn't argue as much. Mm. Uh, and the, the fact that Delma keeps holding on to this toad and trying to take care of him, it's, it's, it's sweet. The, uh, the, the, uh, like, if Pete was aware of it, he would be grateful. But he's just disappeared and ended up on a chain gang elsewhere. He actually spends an alarming amount of Act 2 not in the presence of the other two. Mm. And then while they're looking after this frog that Delmer is absolutely convinced is definitely Pete, we finally meet John Goodman, 
in an eye patch. He first comes across them because they've gone into a restaurant, and as they have the the money from their, um, it's well, it's not just the money from their recording session, is it? They get uh, Babyface gets arrested, and they Babyface. get the money that was in the back of his car. Mm. So uh, Everett has all of this stuffed into his dungaree pockets, and they go into this restaurant and order steak dinners, and he makes the mistake of flashing the wad of cash, which uh, Big... Big John T. Big Dan T. Big Dan T catches sight of. He may as well be the fox from Pinocchio. Absolutely. Absolutely. This actually has quite a bit in common with Pinocchio. Mm, yeah, so he... He, These idiots stumbling around being taken for a ride by Ver. It's very episodic in that yeah. same way as he well. He suggests that they should come into business with him in his Bible sales and then decides to just hit them round the head with a big bit of wood and steal the money. <laughs> it is effective. It but is. He, uh, along with various other characters in this, uh, we got Charles Durning playing the most obnoxious, awful character he's ever played. He was the Big Lebowski. He was uh, the Hudsucker proxy. And here he's he's, he's a, a politician. Local, yeah, he's a local governor yeah. and he is running for re-election. And yes, it's the most obnoxious role he's played in a, a Coen Brothers movie, but he somehow manages to be slightly less obnoxious than his, his opposition candidate. Yeah. His opposition is also in the KKK. Yeah. Big Dan T's a member, whereas Homer Stokes is the Grand Wizard, who blathers on about our heritage and that being erased by these fancy-schmancy city types, with all their talk about evolution, plus the blacks and the Jews. You know, sometimes I wish certain movies were not timeless. Interestingly, Delna says to turn Pete back from a toad, they need to find a wizard. Careful what you wish for. Won't you spare me over till another year? Well, I am this none can excel. I'll open the door to heaven or hell. Oh, did someone would pray? Could you wait to call me another day? It's Tommy. They got Tommy. mentioned uh, George Clooney's particular affectation in this. He is really into keeping his hair beautifully pomaded, which is, uh, one assumes, not something you get to do in jail. So the moment he's out, he's after his particular brand, which is Dapper Dan. And he 
tends to his hair at all times and wears hairnets while he's asleep when he can find them and worries about it. He wakes up worrying about his hair. It's just a fun little hook to hang his buffoonery upon. Yeah, and it, it's it's adorable. And for me, it's a bit weird because my grandfather used to use brill cream all the time. I don't think he went to the extent of hair nets at night. Was it fop? No, 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 brill cream. Brill cre- a, well, I'm a not brand. a brill cream man. I'm a Dapper Dan exactly. man. Exactly, but it's the same thing. It's a cream that comes in a tub and you put it on a comb and you comb it and it makes your hair very glossy and slick. Yeah, in fact, you're just greasing your hair. Yeah. But this whole thing seems to culminate in a impromptu live performance of the Soggy Bottom Boys in a town hall, where they obligingly sing a Ramblin' Bob song, but then the whole crowd want them to sing Man of Constant Sorrow. Well, they've, they've crashed the wedding of Everett's ex-wife. Oh, yes, I forgot to mention. He's the paedophamilias of uh, Holly Hunter and her brood of uh, uh, little girls who have been told he was hit by a train leaving nothing but a grease stain on the world and are certain he's definitely dead and are telling him that to his face. Uh, And he gets into a fisticuffs, Marky de Queensbury rules, fight with her new beau who... Where have we seen this guy before? I'm not sure. He's got a weasley little face. Very familiar. And was very purposefully cast. He's a suitor. It's and neat because is... they, they, everyone has their own song. Like the, the uh, Charles Durning's um, political campaign runs on "You Are My Sunshine, My Only Sunshine." What does his opponent win on? It, it, he doesn't like music. He's the one who gets told. <laughs> oh, well, technically, no. He's is you is or is you ain't my voter. Uh, and... The wedding is probably my favourite setup because it's the most, other than the siren scene, it's the most clearly drawn from the Odyssey. His wife is called Penny, and this is Odysseus coming back to find that Penelope is being courted by various different people. I don't know who he is. Is he the priest? He's the priest in Deadwood. Oh, this guy is such a great actor. Ray McKinnon is his name, and uh, if you watch the first season of Deadwood, he plays a priest with a degenerative brain disorder who starts off a, a little bit too overeager, but then slowly becomes more and more desperate, but tries, tries so hard to find meaning mm. in his erosion and in a way that really ruffles Al Swearingen. Al, Al never met a problem he couldn't stab, and he is a cruel, vicious, black-hearted man, but he hates to see this guy suffering, and it's upsetting him on for some unspoken reason that recalls something from his past. I was going to say, I think the implication is that his, his brother or a member of his family had epilepsy, which resulted in fits, which are very similar to what the priest is going through. Yeah. So anyway, that's... Deadwood, which is magnificent. He challenges the new guy to a fight, and every other film, it's a scenario of that like, this guy's a big, angry douchebag who gets into a fight with the uh, uh, with our hero, and our hero may not necessarily beat him, but he definitely comes off as like a, a guy who can stand his ground against a bully. Whereas this fisticuffs with Ulysses, he gets the shit kicked out of him and gets thrown out of not just this Woolworths, but potentially all, all the Woolworths. Yes. People. Yeah, they've been pardoned. The governor pardoned them. Ah, right. Pa- Papio Daniel. They, because they it's claim benefit- that. Yeah, it's a popularity move. 
move to get people to go, yeah, we like this guy because he likes the Soggy Bottom Boys. Yeah, exactly. And when they are going back to the house and get cornered by let's call him for argument's sake the devil uh, they point out that they've just been pardoned by the governor and it's been announced on the radio and they go oh we don't have a radio so we haven't heard that at all he specifically says uh, that's uh, the province of men that's it that's the, the laws, of, of, laws men, of men yes which further makes him more of a mythical figure mm. as I went down in the river to pray studying about that good old way and who shall the starry crown, good Lord, show me the way. Oh, sisters, let's go down, let's go down, come on down. Oh, sisters, let's go down, down in the river to pray. One theme that is definitely intentional is absolution through faith. Ulysses, being the most modern, has a lot of airs and graces and shows off using longer and more complicated words, like we said, something his companions imitate in a bid to remain at his level. However, he scoffs at them for their beliefs, proudly proclaiming that he was the only one not baptised. John Goodman's Big Dan T is a cycloptic Bible salesman who starts off seemingly genuine but turns out to simply be an unscrupulous thief, something Ulysses doesn't even register until he's hit in the face with a big tree branch. What Ulysses is in fact seeking is his former wife Penelope and to return to the place of paedophamilias with his little girls. However, Penelope seeks a suitor who is bona fide and doesn't recognise that in Ulysses despite his protestations until he becomes the world's first rock star which meets her approval, though he still needs to go on a further quest to get a ring. Meanwhile, of the three escaped convicts, John Turturro's Pete is the most nervous, the most scared, and aggressive as a result. He prays to God for forgiveness, and repeatedly, God answers the call, as Pete escapes a hanging and later is cut free of his chains again. Delma doesn't sweat damnation too much. He doesn't want to die, but the baptism is enough for him to believe he has been saved, which suggests whatever his crimes were, they were petty and largely victimless for he expresses no guilt nor malice to another living soul. It is not until the very end, on his knees, under a freshly prepared noose and the gloating devil, that Ulysses finally becomes humble and expresses the truth that he just wants to be with his family, asking God for rescue. And the rescue comes in the shape of a flood, a divine intervention that Ulysses lapses back into hand-waving away as a miraculous coincidence, the moment he's safely clinging to the floating wooden coffin. However, the cow upon the roof of the cotton house shuts his mouth, as this was predicted by Theresius the Blind Oracle, the boatman that they met way back in scene two. It turns out that, like the Indiana Jones films, God and the Devil definitely exist in this world and absolutely will intervene and take action when they see fit. Notably though, the flood occurred because of the building of a dam, one which would soon be supplying Mississippi with hydroelectricity, dragging the state out of the past and into the future, one where false god politicians like Menelaus use the emotional responses of the people to further secure his power, and where manipulative liars like the Cyclops and Homer Stokes, the Grand Wizard of the KKK, weaponize faith 
to advance their own standing. So yeah, the film itself is very engaging and enjoyable. It has some absolutely smashing music and it is a film abundant in qualities that, as I said at the beginning, nonetheless comes off as somewhat naive, especially nowadays. I feel like this was the last time that the Coen brothers made a comedy that just hit the big time and that everyone thought was great at the time. The last time that the Coen brothers would make films that really struck a note with the public was True Grit, to a lesser extent, and No Country for Old Men, which will be our double bill next time around as we continue our Coen Brothers series. If you are on our Patreon at the $5 level, then over the coming weeks and months you will be able to hear what we thought of the other lesser known Coen Brothers movies, including The Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty, The Lady Killers, Burn After Reading, A Serious Man, Hail Caesar, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, and The Tragedy of The Scottish Play. <laughs> But after the musical break, we're going inside Lewin Davis. I had a friend named Ramblin' Bob. He used to steal, gamble, and rob. He thought he was the smartest guy around. Well, I found out last Monday that Bob got locked up Sunday. They've got him in the jailhouse way downtown. He's in the jailhouse now He's in the jailhouse now Well, I told him once or twice To stop playing cards and shooting dice He's in the jailhouse now Folk songs. Folk songs. Solo act? No, I had a partner. Threw himself off the George Washington Bridge. George Washington Bridge? You throw yourself off the Brooklyn Bridge, traditionally. George Washington Bridge. Who does that? If I had wings, I'd know stuff. I'd fly the river. Explain the cat. What's its name? I, I don't know. It's the Gorkhine's cat. It slipped out and I don't have the key. Well, my honey, fare thee well. Don't tell Jim. Oh! Obviously. Well, I had a man, strong and tall. He moved his body like a cannonball. Well, fare thee well. Mel, there was no advance on my solo record. There's got to be some royalty. For Christ's sake, it's cold out. I don't even have a winter coat. You're kidding me. Take this kid. No, no. I remember one evening in the pouring rain. And 
heart. Do you ever think about the future at all? You mean like flying cars? Hotels on the moon? Tang? I want you to leave. Get out of here. Danny, your uncle's a bad man. Okay. So show us a interested in, in gigging here. Okay, let's hear something. You don't want to hear the record? Why should I? You're here. Play me something. Play me something from inside Lewin Davis. Okay. There are a number of things that are really good about the film. The first one is Oscar Isaac's performance, and he's terrific. I mean, he's, a, he's really good. He's really good at playing this kind of... He looks... It's not so much world-weary, it's somebody who's out, a man out of time, to use that Elvis Costello phrase. And he's very good at doing that. And incidentally, in terms of the, the, the uh, question that we were having before about whether or not a, a central character has to be sympathetic for you to care about them, it's a perfect example of a, of a character who doesn't deserve your sympathy because in many ways he's a completely rubbish person. But on the other hand, you do end up caring about him. Partly, it has to be said, because everyone keeps telling him how rubbish he is and so you sort of start to feel sorry for him. But actually, it's, it's more than that. It's because the way in which he plays this sort of wastrel figure is engaging. The look of the film is beautiful. It obviously takes as its central colour palette the cover, for example, of the freewheel in Bob Dylan. It's that sort of muted browns and greens. Everything is cold. Everything is snowy. Everything is freezing. And all the time there's this sort of sense of, you know, you're huddling from a, from a hostile atmosphere. It's a different sort of Coen Brothers film. It's the kind of movie where you could go in and start watching it without knowing that it's a Coen Brothers film. And after a while, you start feeling like it's a Coen Brothers film. But because of some stylistic choices that have been uh, switched around, you wouldn't know that it was a Coen Brothers film until you saw at the end Joel and Ethan Coen, I knew it. I knew there was something. Uh, two major switch arounds. One of them is that Bruno Delbanel takes the place of Roger Deakins. And his, if you look at Deakin's photography of grim, miserable weather, it's still fucking gorgeous. Uh, Road to Perdition is a really good example. It rarely is the weather in that movie look like it belongs in an art gallery with you just sitting, staring at it, taking it all in. Part of the, the craft of Deakin's photography is to make something like 1917. The First World War as a vision of a jaw-dropping, horrific, grandiose hell in comparison to, say, Death Watch from 2002, directed by N.J. Bassett, with cinematography by Hubert Taksanovsky that is far closer. You're practically inside the mud, and it's not grandiose at all. It's a torture cage. It's barbed wire and mud and no escape whatsoever and, and you get no sense of there being land anywhere. You've been buried. Deakins gives us almost a loftier view of everything. An angel's eye view. Not necessarily vertically, but ever so slightly detached. Always somewhat glorious. While Bruno Debonel puts us more in Lewin Davis's shoes as we trudge through the slushy snow. Shades of greyish colour, greyish pastel, and everything seems to have been uh, washed in dishwater, which gives it a depressive vibe. Deakins invites you to wake up and look, whereas this is almost like 
asking you to slump into the film. I was just going to say, so it, it feels like what you're describing there is the difference between a um, a far perspective look out over this valley where it's pouring with rain and doesn't it look wonderful? Yeah. And a you're stood in an alleyway, it's pissing down on your head, and you're in it. See, you say stood in an alleyway, I immediately start thinking of Blade Runner-style photography from Roger Deakins. <laughs> <laughs> and a neon back in the, in the yeah, background. No, yeah, I so. suppose he does do the, the down-in-the-gutter stuff as well, but yeah. even then, the, but no, because Blade Runner does combine that pull-back perspective shot, which is very yeah. important to get an overview of a world mm. that you, you want to take in all of. I think you don't get perspective shots in, in this. This is very much, uh, we are manacled to a guy we don't like immediately. Uh, the, first, the first thing we see is, uh, it's 1961, uh, we have a folk singer named Lewin Davis. Uh, for a start, any movie which starts with the name of a person that we don't know who's a character in the film, automatically, it's almost as annoying as songs that start with the word and. Mm. Like, is that, how dare you start with the word and? You've got to have some serious welly behind that word and if you're going to carry on with that. And so the story goes, they wore the clothes, they said the things to make it seem improbable. You've got to be Bowie. The will of a lie like the hope it was. Get out of here, Goo Goo Dolls. Go, scat. But movies named after characters in the movie we haven't been introduced to yet. Charlie Bartlett. Who the fuck is Charlie Bartlett? Why should I care? I love you, Beth Cooper. John Tucker must die. Charlie St. Cloud. Dolores Claiborne. Even Jerry Maguire. My beloved Jerry Maguire falls prey to this. It's okay for fantasy because they usually have a exciting name like Willow, Akira, Beetlejuice. I don't even know where I'm going with this thing. Okay, as a rule, if it's a drama and most of the title is somebody's name and that somebody is fictitious, that's a hurdle you gotta get over for me. I think it's because so many biopics are just the name of that person. Elvis, Ray, Whitney, Elizabeth, Nixon, Hoffa, J. Edgar, Milk. But in those cases, it feels like one of their two names is enough to tell you about that person. But if they're less well known, and it's telling you a story of someone you almost certainly haven't heard of, but is true, you go with both names. Erin Brockovich, Veronica Guerin, Vera Drake. Except Vera Drake didn't exist, being John Malkovich. But we know who John Malkovich is. I mean, Barton Fink, I suppose. But I know, we don't even know that's a name. That's true. This is what I'm talking about. By calling your whole film a person's name, you kind of flip a coin regarding whether you're going to see something that actually happened or something that didn't. But in the case of the Coen brothers, who have been known to do this before by claiming Fargo was a true story, calling it Inside Lewin Davis is a move to make you feel like it did happen. That this is a true, previously untold story of a sad man who disappeared. So as we begin, Oscar Isaac as Lewin Davis is singing a song that might be his best, is probably the most personal, exemplary of his character in how self-pitying it is, yet somehow still powerful in how nakedly vulnerable it is. Hang me, oh hang me. In a smoky New York club where everybody is quietly paying him attention. And the song is soulful and melancholy and haunting and... 
entirely emblematic of the folk music movement of the time. Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone Hang me, oh hang me I'll be dead and gone I wouldn't mind the hanging But the laying in the grave So long, poor boy Been all around this world I've been all around Cape Jordan Parts of Arkansas All around Cape Jordan Parts of Arkansas I got so goddamn hungry I could hide behind a straw Poor boy been all around this world Went up on the mountain There I Went up on the mountain, there I made my stand. A rifle on my shoulder and a dagger in my hand. Poor boy, I've been all around this world. So hang me, oh hang. Plenty of other movies would present you with a character who is wildly talented and frustrated as they go through the various tribulations of becoming famous. Like uh, uh, all music biopics mm. do that. When we talked about Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story, you get this troubled guy, usually start, it's almost always a guy, um, but this troubled person usually start at childhood and they, they, they give you some kind of tragedy or hard life that then informs upon their art from then on because the filmmaker and the scriptwriter have found a place to bring you back to. 
With Lewin, you never get reasons directly why he is the way he is. Certainly not in a way that it's like, well, I understand completely your attitude because it seems like that there are sad things about his life as the story unfolds. But as you go through the film, you're like, well, you're still being an asshole about this. Yeah. Like, I, I, you, you get fairly soon that you're not supposed to like him. But I think Kermode said that because everyone keeps saying, you fucker, you asshole, that you kind of... You kind of feel sorry for him because of the barrage mm. he's under. But you still sort of... There's an element of, well, they're not wrong exactly. Mm. You are behaving like a dick. I think- it reminds me of uh, Deconstructing Harry, the Woody Allen yeah. film. You schmuck, you bastard. I don't cut your fucking head off. Judy Davis on fire. Yeah, um, so, but in that, like similarly, uh, Harry is fucking terrible. Mm. And it's just that the you, you kind of vibe with him because he's funny. And then you find out that Woody Allen did terrible things over the course of the next 20 years. And you uh, cool off on the film. But Oscar Isaac did different guy. See, I still kind of like deconstructing Harry because it is basically everybody dumping on Woody Allen for an hour and a half. Understandable. Mm. It's one of his most masochistic films. It is, yes. Continue. Possibly why it's my favourite of his Mm. that I can still watch. What I found by the end of Inside Lewin Davis, and it it takes, it took for me some thinking about, Mm. because the experience of being with the film is not a pleasant one. It's, It's not... It's not unpleasant. It's not unpleasant, but it is like, oh, God, what's next? Yeah, there's... It's it's an ordeal. It is. There's so little to kind of inspire. It's a shitty little odyssey. (laughs) Exactly. And that is obviously part of the intention. I mean, one of the things that struck me when uh, we watched the the Kermode review is he said that the Coens don't like explaining what their films are about. And they will often give misleading or dismissive answers when asked because they're trying to put people off Mm. going down that that road and i get that i understand i mean the the a good example of a a, another group of director a couple of directors that do that is the wachowskis did not want to nail their opinions to the mast about what the Matrix was about, but as a result, they got other people to talk about what they saw in it, mm. which is really engaging and, and informative. To create a dialogue between critical critics and uh, positive philosophers. Precisely. Whereas the Cohen's approach, rather than doing something like that, seems to be to literally throw up walls when people ask them questions. It, for instance, about Literally throw Sorry, not literally. <laughs> Symbolically throw up walls. Jesus, not literally. That would be hideous. <laughs> Kermode mentioned that in this one there's a, a recurring cat that is effectively the, the line of the narrative that holds everything together mm. and is possibly the most important thread in the whole movie. One of them said in interview that the cat was thrown in at the last minute because they didn't think the story had much of a narrative and they needed something for the audience to be able to follow. Stop talking, Coen brothers. <laughs> You're making yourself sound bad. And I get that that was probably a lie, but at the moment, guys, that's all you've given me to go on. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, but, but by the end of the film, I would say, for me at least, it is fairly obvious why Lewin is behaving the way he is... But we don't get much in terms of what he might have been like without those elements. And he certainly never seems to do anything to try and resolve them. The fact that his sister is very aggressive with him Mm. uh, suggests that he's always been like this. She's both aggressive and guarded. And the way he reacts to her is 
selfish and juvenile, suggesting it's not just a case of her overreacting. Nightmare Alley actually follows a similar kind mm. of uh, 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 feel to it. It's just that I engage a lot more with this yeah. because when Lewin sings, what I was getting around to was a lot of the time it'll be someone who's genuinely gifted. He's not a great singer, but he is a good singer and we can see the most of his tenderness through that music, mm, which there's a very fine line, which, especially if you are sur- in a music scene, surrounded by people who are equally good singers. Mm. Perfect example. This is a trio by three of the characters in the film, played by Kerry Mulligan, Justin Timberlake and Stark Sands. And their harmonizing is in stark contrast to Lewin's solitary bard. difficult to stand out and Lewin proves himself repeatedly to be very very bad at marketing himself or in just playing the game and there's an almost instant tragedy where it's like you've well as as Kermode said he's missed the boat which makes him being part of the merchant navy and not paying his fees and getting fucked over on that it's a pretty blunt symbolism there's an instant sense of you're not going to be able to make this without phenomenal good luck. And this movie is not about phenomenal good luck. It's not, no. He, he multiple times throughout the story, he makes decisions and reacts to things very quickly and without thinking them through, based only on the information that he has in his immediate surroundings. And his sudden sparking emotion. And it emotion. does not go well with uh, for him yeah. as a result. Oh my God, can Oscar Isaac sing? I know you said he's like he's only middling in terms of talent, but his voice is just... I had no idea he could sing like that. Yeah. It's gorgeous. But you're right about the marketing because ultimately there are many other people who probably do much better than him who are about as talented or maybe even a little bit less so. Mm. But it's the fact that he can't, like you said, he can't play the game, he can't schmooze, he can't be nice and friendly and and make people like him and in an industry he's not the life of the party absolutely and in an industry you need that and if you don't have that you need an agent or a representative or a partner who can do that for you Mm. and a big 
shadow that is over this whole story is the absent partner, is the, the guy that he was obviously very close friends with, who he was in a musical duo with, who they were clearly hoping to pop together. Yeah, they might have been a Simon and Garfunkel together. But on his own... He, he is, can't be a Garfunkel. Yeah, and it's it's possible that it's because this friend of his had all of the, the personality and all the sparkle. And, and could and do the schmoozing. Might have been able to do that side of things. Maybe he didn't. We don't know because we never find out anything about this guy. But It's what uh, Victoria said, uh, that suicide leaves behind human, human shrapnel. shrapnel. Absolutely. And it's devastated Lewin, but in a way that's low-key and insidious. So it's slowly gnawing away at him. In a way he can ignore. Like you, you get the weight of this and the sense of almost like momentum for momentum's sake. Mm. He's bouncing around between people's couches. He's relying on other people's kindness. He's often exploiting other people's kindness because he doesn't want to stop doing this because he doesn't see a version of his life where he's not doing this. Absolutely. Well, that's, it's, it's relatable for artists. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing that kind of hit me at the end of the film and, and has more so the more I think about it. He is stuck in a state of arrested grief. He keeps looping back around on mm. himself about this loss. He, uh, he... Not even necessarily grief for the person. Mm. Grief for the version of their lives exactly. that he thought they were walking towards. And, and that's what I think a big part of this. I mean, the, the film itself is a loop. It comes back around on itself. And that's what Lewin keeps doing. He keeps going back to the same people, the same couches, the same... He's walking the same circuit around the city over He begins and, over and again. ends in the same club. He starts off getting beaten up in an alley for reasons you do not... That are not immediately apparent. At the end, he behaves like shit to somebody and then gets beaten up in that same alley. So effectively, we're seeing this scenario ahead of time or maybe it's just that his shitty cyclical behavior leads him to get beaten up by guys who all seem the same so it it might be a literal loop it might be a symbolic loop but this is what he keeps doing so at the beginning you're like what did he do and at the end you're like yeah i could probably guess what he did yeah but in part i think that's because all of this exploiting of people and bouncing off the same individuals and 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 taking what kindness they will give him but not really engaging with it He is refusing, whether consciously or more probably unconsciously, to properly connect with those people. And and some of them are very close to the person that he's lost. His, His friend's parents are two of the people who provide him with support, but he doesn't really allow that to mean anything to you mean him. his deceased partner's parents his deceased partner's parents yeah so the people with whom he could potentially express that grief and start to move past it mm. he won't he won't connect with them and i suspect that a, a, a big part of that is that what you said about his his grief is in huge part for the the path that they he now cannot take mm. because this deceased partner is not with him so the second he starts to engage with that grief, process it and start to let it go, he is letting go of that life that he thought he could potentially have and and having to acknowledge that's never going to happen now. And that's the step that he can't get over. I mean, you said about it's possible he's always been an arson because his sister's uh, aggressive to him from from Dot. But then you get this looping question anyway. Is he an ass because his sister's aggressive to him or is his sister aggressive to him because he's an ass? It feels a little in that regard like uh, Punch Drunk Love, but you 
feel for Barry a lot more than yeah. you feel for Lewin because Barry does fewer shitty things. He does things like when he smashes the screen door, you're like, I get why he did that. His mm. sisters were being fucking horrible to him and he wasn't being allowed to speak. Well, Barry's not trying to... A, Barry's not trying to leech off anybody else. He just wants to be left alone. Yeah. B, Barry's got like five sisters all doing the same thing at him. Mm. Uh, and C... Uh, with Lewin, we also get to see him engage with his father. So I'm guessing that there is also a thread of the difficulties that he's having with processing his father's descent into dementia and what will likely happen soon, death. This is another reason why he and his sister, their tensions are frayed with each other because something genuinely tragic that happens to so many of us, the decline of our parents as we reach middle age, they don't have the solidarity between the two of them to get through it together. It just becomes a source of more and more tension. And he wheedles as well. He asks for things from people. He doesn't exactly demand them, but he asks for things. And then when they don't immediately give them to him, he complains. Mm. He's kind of like, if, if he's missed the folk boat, he's actually in a raft, paddling along at the side, grumbling to himself and, and, and growling, but looking up at the boat and holding up his hand and going, could you please give me a hand up? Yeah, no, yeah, no, fine, fuck it. No, okay, fine. And then he wakes up the next day. Could you give me a hand up? No, fine, fuck it. And then just sort of keeps wandering through. Mm, But this is what I mean about the impulsive decisions and him uh, him snapping and um, not wanting to deal with problem A in the moment that it's given to him, which is perfectly understandable. But his solution is to push everybody away from him and the, the, the issues so hard that that then causes him problems further down the line. His sister has been trying to get him for ages <coughs> to sort out some paperwork that he'd left at his dad's house. And his response to that has been, I don't care, just get rid of the lot. So she gets rid of the lot. And then he finds out there was stuff in there that yeah. he really needed. His Merchant Navy papers. Yeah. yeah. This is Dave Van Ronk, the man that Lewin is somewhat based on. And Lewin sings this exact same song in the film. When I go by Baltimore Need no carpet on my floor You come along Follow me We'll go down to Galilee Green, green, rocky road You're promenading green Tell me who you love, tell me who you love See that crow up in the sky, he don't walk He just fly, he don't walk He don't run, he keep on flapping To the sun Holland Green, Green, Rocky Road You're promenading green Tell me who you love, tell me who you love. The cat scenario actually runs the thread through the whole movie. It, there is a, a, a trope of storytelling, uh, which is a, quite a reliable thing to incorporate early in your uh, tale. Uh, the save the cat moment, where your audience is asking, why should I care about this person? And if they then save the cat, even if they're an asshole, you're like, well, he did save that cat. And in this is a literal kind of, not just save the cat, but he has to take responsibility for the cat. His um, deceased partner's parents are out of town for a few days, so they ask him to um, you know, just lock up properly and make sure that the cat's okay. The cat, as you say, gets out, and he runs around in the street, picks up 
a cat question mark and then spends most of the movie kind of babysitting this thing like it's a pain for him to, like he doesn't bond with the cat but it's his it's a monkey on his back that he has to make sure is always on his back and when he finally gets it back to the uh, parents there is this screech of that is not my cat which is predictable but hilarious at the same time. Yeah. Like, there's this sort of black comedy throughout of either just leave it or just do something with this cat. But like the cat is a really uh, is exemplary. You could read it as all of the responsibilities of his life that he should be doing, like the get down to brass tacks and deal with properly, mm. and isn't. Yeah. So it's not just that he's trying to save a small furry animal. It's that his version of responsibility has become disentangled with his life and he has disassociated himself from it. Mm, indeed. Not entirely, and that's the thing. The fact that the cat, or a cat, or a number of cats keep crossing his path throughout mm. the story, even as he travels far, far afield mm. uh, to, to seek his fortune, almost... It is a bit Dick Whittington. It is, yeah. But the, the implication is a little bit... He, he would actually be better off either forgetting about the cat entirely, yeah. disconnecting from all of these people who represent his old life and properly moving on, which he doesn't seem able to do, or just find the right cat, get that situation sorted, and then Strap you Strap it move to on. yourself. Exactly. And he can't do that either. That's the, mm. that's the thing. He keeps kind of wandering away from his responsibilities, and then his responsibilities kind of wander back across his path and trip him up. Yeah. Uh, Kerry Mulligan plays a character named Jean, who uh, there's this sort of lovely, almost hypnotic folk song where she sings with uh, Jim, who is played by Justin Timberlake. And Jim has everything that... Uh, Lewin wants, including Jean, and they they sing this lovely. Sort of, this reminded me this uh, that their folk of um, a mighty wind, mm. which is a wonderful, wonderful tribute to folk. That's also kind of poking fun at it. It's it's hilarious and and sweet and heartwarming. But um, then when he speaks to Jean, she's like, "You fucking bastard!" Because uh, she is now pregnant and she doesn't know if it's Lewin's or Jim's, and she has to then take responsibility for it without knowing what that ultimately entails, which puts her in a very difficult situation and she blames him entirely for it. Jim, later on, seemingly out of charity, asks Lewin to uh, sit in on a recording session and play co-guitar with him to record a song called Please Mr. Kennedy, which is a space race novelty song. It's somewhat based on Please Mr. Custer. I had that song on vinyl. But actually, honestly, it's, it's almost closer to Surfing Bird. Mm. Yeah. With all of the noises and all of the gleep gloops. See, uh, Justin Timberlake is accompanied by Adam Driver who is I mean this is such a small part of the film but it is fucking fascinating to watch for me because this is him trying to do the corporate thing and being totally turned off by it Adam Driver makes weird scat noises with no like they don't shake hands he doesn't say I'm going to be making weird scat noises he just sort of performs in this song adding like extra vocals but they're all nonsense and I think the, my favourite shot in the movie might be one of my favourite shots the Coen brothers have ever done, and so much of it is down to Oscar Isaac. Lewin starts to sort of play the guitar, and they're sort of just practising first, and then Driver starts 
gibbering, and Oscar Isaac's eyes flick up at him. He doesn't say anything, but Oscar Isaac has these amazing eyes where you know that he's pissed off immediately. And it's like, it's, there's just so much of it. Hang on, what about that expression? And it's so weird that it's Adam Driver because it's like, so who sings first? You sing first, I sing first. It's hard to, you know, with the cowboy hat. And the song which we will play for you now in its entirety... Like I say, it's, it's, a, it's a novelty kids song, for, but it just it's so accurate to the era that, again, it evokes a mighty wind which feels very on point for the kind of folk music that it is both parodying and worshipping. But it's so fucking catchy and it's such an earworm, you'll find yourself humming that in the next few days. You're welcome, folks. <laughs> I don't want it, don't send me off in the outer space. I sweat when they put me yeah, in but the we want to go to the Let's do the, the papa, please, into the, into the verse. Really? Yeah. Don't turn off in the outer. When I can't. It gets all muddled up into the verse. No, no, no. Show. No, you just do the papas into the verse. If you do two papas. Papa. Yep. When they sweat when yep. Show. Really? Yep. Yeah. I sweat when they stuck me in the pressure suits. Bubble helmet, flash gold boots. Oh, oh, oh! Gravity. Shoot. There's no place to be a hero. Okay. Uh, yeah. uh, uh, uh. Okay. Hey, look, I'm happy for the gig, but who, who wrote this? I did. Okay. So, okay. Good. Shout. Please, Mr. Kennedy, take one, and we're rolling. One second, please. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh -oh. I don't want to go. Don't shoot me in the outer space. Oh. Please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh -oh. I don't want to go. Don't shoot me in the outer space. I sweat when they stuff me in the pressure suits. Bubble, helmet, dashboard, and boots. Nowhere up there outer. in gravity suits. I need to breathe. Outer. Don't need to be a space. Reading me loud and clear, roll please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh oh, I don't wanna go. Don't show me how to stop. Oh, please, Mr. Kennedy. Uh oh, I don't wanna go. Don't show me out of space. I'm six foot two, and so perhaps you'll tell me how I fit into a five capsule. I won't be known as mid of the century. If I look At the end of the film, he's leaving the club where he began, and uh, Bob Dylan himself has started playing. And it's almost like it's it's if he had just had the right 
attitude, if he just asked for the right favours in the right places, he could have been the one sat there charming everyone. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, Bob Dylan is Bob Dylan, Mm. and that music came from Bob. It wasn't just the luck of being in the right place at the right time. He's frequently in the right place at the slightly wrong time and occasionally the right place at the right time, but he never quite captures everyone Mm. because ultimately that singing talent is attached to a person who is embittered. Yeah, and a big part of it is that, yes, he's probably going to, at some point in his life, be lamenting the fact that he couldn't be Bob Dylan meeting the people that Bob Dylan did right as he did in order to get his contract signed and his record deals and blah 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 But if you spend your life lamenting the fact that your path does not match someone else's you know this is the 1961 equivalent of staring at someone else's instagram feed and and thinking why doesn't my life look like that okay one phrase i keep hearing is don't compare your live feed to somebody else's highlight reel nice there is, I think the the key scene, obviously the Please Mr. Kennedy scene's hilarious, but the key dramatic scene for me is where he sits in front of a record producer played by F. Murray Abraham and sings an entire song. Which is absolutely gorgeous. Queen Jane, which is wonderful and heartfelt. And you're like, okay, it would take a, a flinty-hearted husk in human form to push this aside The song he sings is The Death of Queen Jane, which is not written by Lewin Davis at all. It is, in fact, a fairly ancient, by American standards, English folk song. Though the circumstances of the ballad's composition are not documented, a close correspondence of names and events suggests that it very likely describes Jane Seymour, the third wife of Henry VIII of England who is very rarely cast into this kind of sympathetic light. And deservedly so, he was a beast. Historically, Jane Seymour, the one of his six wives that he actually loved, gave birth to a son who became Edward VI of England on October 12, 1537. Queen Jane is in difficult labour. The time given ranges from three days to an astonishing six weeks, and she asks a succession of people to cut open her sides and save her baby. Each refuses her in turn, understanding that this would cause her death. She asks for others to be sent to her, variously her mother, a surgeon or doctor, and King Henry, and of each she makes the same request. Finally, someone... Henry, in most versions, succumbs to her pleas and the surgery is done, whereupon she dies. The song ends with descriptions of the mourning and most versions contrast the joy at the birth of a male heir with the grief over the death of the Queen. And this song has been sung by hundreds of artists over the years, over the centuries, most notably in this context by a contemporary of Davis and Dylan, Joan Byers. What matters? in the film, and I suspect more in Oscar Isaac's performance than in the writing or directing of Joel and Ethan Cohen, is the tenderness in the voice of a man who has only potentially made a woman pregnant, broken her trust, and earned her wrath as she seeks an abortion for what might in fact be the child of the man she actually loves, Justin Timberlake's Jim. Kerry Mulligan's character is named Jean, and the Scottish versions of the Queen Jane song occasionally switch Jane to Jeannie. And then for Lewin, you layer on top of that a mountain of unvoiced guilt for the death of his partner, Mike, 
whose lack of explanation for his suicide only compounds the hurt and bewilderment for those left behind. Lewin seems permanently unable to say goodbye and lay this ghost to rest to the point where he gets angry with Mike's grieving mother for endeavouring to sing her son's part of the harmony in their shared song, Fare Thee Well, something Lewin cannot do. And his response is just a long pause after he has just stared like a sphinx impenetrably at the entire song as it's played. His, his face has not reacted. He has not moved an inch. And he says, I don't see a lot of money here. And it's one of the most deflating of responses. Because if this was making Lewin happy, if he was feeling like, you know what, I fucking, I'll just couch surf this, I do this because I love being able to express myself in front of small crowds, then that would clearly be enough for him and he'd be like, I don't need your money. If you're lucky enough as an artist to be able to do that without starving to death, then that's a fantastic way to, uh, to ply your trade and to live your life. Lewin is always dissatisfied with everything, so it's heartbreaking to hear the money man go, no, 
at him. And this is after the, very significantly, because he can't play the game, because he's broke, he takes, instead of a royalty of Please Mr. Kennedy, he takes a session fee, which means he gets paid a little bit right now and he'll never get one red cent. So if this song turns out to be absolutely huge, number one radio play like Surfing Bird, uh, he doesn't get one dollar more than he got on that day. And that that's almost more telling of his business acumen and his ability to market himself and play the game and the lack thereof than even F. Murray Abraham, one music agent, telling him, no, I can't ride you. Mm, yeah. And a big part of that is not his fault because when you're living hand-to-mouth, you have to take what you can get yeah. in the hand or it doesn't matter when the royalties come through, you will already have starved yeah. to death. He needs to pay his Merchant Navy fees just so he can get steady work that he can rely on. But again, the Merchant Navy always represents this the other way to use his life and it just seems like he doesn't want to do it. It's mm. the equivalent of, I don't want to do bar work or fold sweaters. But that's the thing, they won't even let him do that. Yeah. He pays them the money, but then... They're like, yeah, you, you owed us money, but because you don't have the paperwork, you still don't get to work with us, and uh, thanks for the money. Mm. It's so fucking frustrating. And I think the worst thing is that his like his father fading away and his sister and he just at each other's throats is that he is homeless. More so than houseless, which is uh, something that I uh, got um, George Carlin to um, voice on the With None and I uh, episode. He's homeless in that he has no place to be. Mm. It's really hard to get through this whole film and not feel sorry for him, even though he's a shit, because that homelessness is recognized. Yeah, he has no people not, to be with and he has no place to be in. It's not even that just that. That's an external thing still, even though the connection with the people is is the more important than the, the building. He doesn't he is not at home within himself. He is a stray cat trying to find and cart around a cat that has a home mm. that he needs to return it to. Yeah. And from the sounds of things, he actually keeps carting around various different cats. Several um, of whom might be strays. Yeah. <laughs> that don't want to be at home with him. School of Movies is overjoyed on a weekly basis to be able to bring our shows to you folks. And we, unlike Paul Lewin, can actually see our support, our backers, the folks who want us to keep going as long as we can. And a special thank you to those folks at the $15 tier for whom we would love to visit their hometowns and couch surf our way around the world, playing to little enthusiastic crowds. Thank you to Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandro Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolfe, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Johan Clausen, Joe Gluck, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vai, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Pullmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, Michael Hasco, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, 
Timu Hellas-Hayo, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. Once again, you can hear the majority of the remaining Coen Brothers films discussed on our Patreon bonus feed, as they are released over the coming months. And we have one final main event episode, comprising their two best westerns, the remake of True Grit and No Country for Old Men. If I had wings like Nora's dove, I'd fly up the river to the one I love. Fare thee well, oh honey, fare thee well.
my heart was an aching pain. Fair.